Every now and then I get asked by um, newcomers in the fireside room uh, or just elsewhere in the facility, I get asked this question, what do I call you? <laughs> Don't ask my brothers that question. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a very polite question. I appreciate the question. How would you like to be addressed? That's the question. And, and, and so um, my reply is typically, well, my, my formal name on my birth certificate is Randall. Uh, my nickname is Randy. Either of those are fine. Uh, I don't expect or need a title. Uh, uh, sometimes parents will come to me and they're helping their children, their young children, you know, wanting to show respect. And so they, they you know, would appreciate some side of, side of some type of title. And I said, well, if, if, if you would like that for your child, then how about simply Brother Randy? Brother Randy. That's sufficient. Um, if you're around here long, uh, you know, we use the language of pastor or minister in our church culture. Um, some of you come from church cultures where the word priest is a part of uh, your familiarity. And um, so the language of priesthood. The idea of a priest is not necessarily religious because someone who functions as a priest functions as a go-between, a go-between. So, for instance, when you hire a lawyer, you're asking a lawyer to function as a go-between because probably not a good idea to represent yourself in court. Need a lawyer, okay? Need a lawyer to represent you. That's a priestly function. The lawyer as a go-between. When your primary physician says, I need to refer you to a specialist, the, the primary will probably not give you the specialist's cell number. Okay? Instead, the office will, they'll call the specialist's office and schedule an appointment on your behalf. See, that's a priestly function, a go-between. When you're trying to get a job, you're trying to get access to uh, a potential employer, and you, you, know, you want access to someone, you, you may have someone that you know who knows the person you don't know, and you ask them to help you get an audience. That's a, that's a priestly function. That's a priestly function, a go-between, uh, and, and, and someone to intercede for you. And, and of course, you can probably reason with me to know that the more qualified the priest, the more qualified the go-between, then the more favor that you will have before someone whose access you need, okay? So the quality of your priest counts. You gotta get a good priest. You need a good priest. I know a good priest today. Amen? Well, let's let's meet him here. Take your Bibles and meet me in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. 
And I want to talk about the most qualified priest to represent us before the most important person in the universe. You got a priest? You need a priest? You need a good priest? No, you don't need a good priest. You need a great priest. And these verses tell us of a great high priest. Hear these words from the Word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. So our text today uh, is really a summary of the entire message of Hebrews. So if you wanted the Cliff Notes version of all 13 chapters of the message of the Hebrews, you just heard it. You just heard it. Uh, it's a summary about who God is and God's heart and his character. It's also a summary about ourselves and an accurate assessment of the human condition. And then it's a summary of Jesus. His identity, and, and it's an identity centering around this word, priest, interse uh, intercessor, go-between, all right? So, so 
I just want to answer three questions as we consider these verses today. And um, first, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God's heart? What do we learn about God's character from these verses? I want to talk about that. Then I want to talk about ourselves. What do we learn that's true about every person in this room? Every person in this room. And then, oh, this is the best part of the message. What do we learn about Christ? What do we learn about Jesus? What do these verses have to encourage us and exhort us about the very Son of God? God, ourselves, Jesus. That's where we're going today. Amen? Let's go to work. Question number one. What do these verses teach us about God? What do they teach us about God? Well, these verses... uh, At the very beginning, they tell us that God wants us to be near him. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Grace, not to the throne of anger, not to the throne of revenge, not to the throne of irritation, but to the throne of grace. God's heart of grace pulses so that we can be near him beloved god desires community with us with you with our church family together and and he his throne is a throne of grace and his throne is a throne of mercy verse 16 so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Do you see that there? Receive mercy and find grace. And the implication is if we receive mercy and if we find grace, that means that mercy and grace have an origin, and that origin is the very throne of God. And it says that we may receive mercy and grace to help literally in our timely need. Are not just time of need, but at a specific time with a specific need at just the right time. No sooner, no later, on time, every time, God's throne of grace and mercy meet us. This is what these verses tell us about God. So whatever background you've come from, Whatever experiences that you've had, know that the God of the Bible is the God who desires communion and friendship and fellowship with his people. That you are here today is no accident whatsoever. It is out of God's desire because God enjoys your company. We don't listen, we do not believe at this church. Uh, that, that, that God carries this sort of, this, this level of low-grade irritation with us. What do you want now? <laughs> Where is that in these verses? It's, it's, it's nowhere to be found. He desires us. He desires us. What's that like? What's that like? Oh, oh, I want to tell you something that happened to me yesterday. It was so fun. So yesterday was our, a family blessing day here at the church and we had a time of 
of blessing and prayer over uh, just, our, our, just our little men and women here at church. And I want to show you some pictures here. Let's, let's see here. So, can, can, yeah, I, can we dim the lights? Because I want you to get this. This is really good here. Yeah, can, like these lights. There we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Isn't that a great shot? Oh, man. Now, you know, what you need to understand is that Karen Brown, who took this picture, has, has a really fast, you know, shutter speed because there was about a dozen pictures trying to get us all orchestrated at the one time, you know, was, 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 was a lot of fun. Um, but then here's the, here's the next, there we go, there just, okay, that, that was about, that was about a half a second after that first shot, all right? <laughs> that's how, that, that's how that works. <laughs> Who is this strange man holding me? Mom! <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, listen to me, listen, uh, God enjoys us like we enjoy the children in our congregation. You've got to believe that. That's what these verses tell us, okay? God enjoys us like we enjoy the children in our congregation. God doesn't just tolerate us. He enjoys us. He, he enjoys us. Uh, um, my mind goes to another pastor his name was octavius winslow what a name octavius winslow this is what he said to his church he said beloved the friendship of god transcends all friendship the love of god transcends all love god loves not only the persons but the interests and concerns of his people there is nothing, beloved, about you that Christ does not feel an interest in. That is good news. He's concerned in all your sorrows, in all your trials, in all your infirmities, in all your wants, in all your temptations. Do not think that his is a divided affection. Oh, no. You are precious to his heart. All that relates to you is precious your life is precious. Your death is precious. Can you think of the departure to eternity of one that you love with indifference? Well, God's love just overflows. His throne of grace and his supply of mercy help us. And it's so meaningful. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that uh, for two reasons. One reason is that's not the message that the world's going to give us. The world, the world is going to give us, and you're very familiar with these next words, the very world that we are about to enter into after we depart is a do-more-try-harder world. And, and we need a reminder of God's grace and mercy when we have to interact with the brokenness of our world. But then there's the second reason that we, we, need, we need to be constantly feeding on the grace and mercy of God. And, and it's this, it's, it's what these verses say about us. So, so if grace and mercy are what these verses say about God, here's a word that describes us, and, and we read it, it's in verse 15. It's the word weakness, weakness. You see it there? Weakness. Our weakness says. Hmm. Now, weakness in these verses don't so much mean illness or sickness or disabilities. Some, in, 
Sometimes that same word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe illnesses or disabilities but, or, uh, or vulnerabilities. But, but here in these verses, the word weakness has to do with weakness in the face of temptation. Weakness that results in sin. Weakness that leads us to sin. And one of our weaknesses is that we're in denial about our weaknesses. See, our weakness has to do with the fatigue and exhaustion of living in a sinful, broken, fallen world. And we read the papers and we wonder, God, you know, how much longer will this world be filled with violence and nations warring on nations? How much longer? And then we, don't, we just zoom the camera in and we, we look about our country. How much longer is the division going to keep up? It's wearying. It's fatiguing. But then we keep zooming in the camera. God, how much longer am I going to have to struggle with the weaknesses that I face? And God, why do I keep yielding to these same sins over and over and over? I promise you, I promise you that I'm never going to do that sin again. But what happens? I, I just, I do it again, Lord God, help me. We're like the Apostle Paul who said in Romans chapter 7, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody here? Does that describe you? That's my story. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Yes. And, and so the, here's where a good priest can help. A good priest can come alongside and give support. And that's really what we see in the first part of chapter 5. Because in the Old Testament, God's people could go to their priest, their pastor, and they could pray together, and they could converse. It says that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then chapter 5, verse 2, look at it, it says... That priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? 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 Because he's better? No. Look, look, look. Since he himself is beset with weakness. So when we gather as a church, and when we meet in small groups, and when we get together one-on-one, -on -one, we hear stories of brokenness. And our response to one another really needs to be the same. Dealing gently with. Dealing gently with. What does that mean? It does not mean that we approve of sin. It does not mean that we endorse the brokenness or the unrighteousness. It does not mean that we redefine what the Bible clearly calls sin. It means that we deal gently it means that we show understanding. It means that we tell the truth in love. It means that we avoid a judgmental, fault-finding spirit. And why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. There's only sinners in this room. And I may not struggle with your sin, but I struggle with my sin. And so there's no point in you know, 
comparing or ranking ourselves to see who the lesser sinner is. You know? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the sooner we make peace with this, the healthier we will be as a church community. Uh, So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who was martyred in World War II. And he wrote a book that I highly recommend. It's called Life Together. It's an outstanding book on congregational life, how we need to get along together here, how to live together as a community. And here's what he said, and I cannot emphasize this enough. He said, he said this, he said, you know, people often bring idealistic, utopian fantasies of what they think church ought to be. You know, everyone will think like me, look like me, please me, and never offend me. That's a fantasy. Okay? That's a fantasy. <laughs> and, and I'm with you. I giggle at that until my expectations aren't met. <laughs> okay? And, and then I just won't have it. Right? And, and please understand, Bonhoeffer is not in any way, shape, or form overlooking you know, pastoral malfeasance, okay? And nor is he turning a blind eye to doctrinal heresy. He's talking about learning to live with other weak and frail sinners because that's who you are and that's who I am. He's talking about the normal scrapes and bruises that happen when um, believers who, are, who have been broken by sin Get up close to one another, you know? Some, who parked in my parking space today? <laughs> What's that about? Someone else sat in your seat today. You know? Well, I like dark roast coffee. What kind of a church is this? <laughs> huh? You know, when, when we come into a church community, we need to make peace with the fact that all of us are beset with weaknesses. All of us. We're not endorsing sin. We're acknowledging that sin happens, and it's in the world, and it's in here, and it's in my heart. That's reality. And reality always shatters our fantasy dreams about church. And so Bonhoeffer said this, The one who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself has become a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And and so Bonhoeffer says, the sooner our fantasy gets shattered, the better. Because then and only then will we see the reality of the situation for what it is. And our God is a God of reality. And when we see reality, then we can turn to the one who is most real. And that's the God of heaven and earth. And so the priests of the Old Testament were called by God to deal gently with the fantasy-shattering reality of sin. They were to deal gently with the wayward and ignorant because they themselves were sinners. 
And so when they offered sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament, they did so for themselves as well as for the people. In a few moments, we're going to share in a time of communion, the Lord's Supper. I will receive communion too because I, I need it. I'm a sinner. Communion reminds me of what Jesus did for me. Thanks be to God. But here's the deal. And maybe you're thinking about this. It, it's not enough for a fellow sinner to come alongside and deal gently with our weaknesses in a sinful, broken, fallen world. That, that's not enough. It's not. So, so the, the point of our gathering here is not to sing and study and pray and commiserate over our shared vulnerabilities. That's not the point. That's not. The, the folks on the Titanic, that famed ocean liner that sank in the frigid North Atlantic waters, they didn't simply need comfort. They needed to be rescued. They needed lifeboats. Hear me. We don't need a fellow loser to come alongside us and offer pity for our defeat. We need a victor. We need a champion. We need a savior. What did Paul ask moments ago? Who will rescue me from this body of death? What's his name? Jesus. Thank God our text declares that our champion is alive and well in the heavenly realm. And his name is Jesus. Let's talk about him. The Hebrew preacher says we have a great high priest. Not just a priest. And not just a high priest, but a great high priest. And verse 14 says he has passed through the heavens. Oh, don't go too quickly by that phrase because that is a worldview statement isn't it this life is not all there is when your life concludes you do not become extinct there is this world and there is the world to come hebrews 13 13 says for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come an unseen city that's more real more brilliant and more beautiful than anything we could ask or imagine. And that city exists even as I speak. And listen, listen, listen. It's closer to us than we think. Paul said in Acts 17.27, Acts 17.27, that, that God is actually not far from each of us. God inhabits the unseen city, and we have a go-between. We have a representative. We have our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. His name is Jesus. Jesus, verse 14, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who lived historically on earth. This Jesus who put on flesh, this Jesus who occupied time and space, this Jesus who is fully human, this Jesus. Oh, 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 and, and, 
is fully human and he is fully divine. That's with the phrase son of God. You see that? That, that, that joined statement is not there incidentally. The Hebrew preacher is saying there is a God-man in the heavenly realm. He is the Son of God, fully God, fully human, and as such, he is able to what? Sympathize. Sympathize with our weaknesses, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Sympathize means to suffer with suffer with so so jesus the son of god is not just able to feel the challenges of our frailty he feels for us with the intention of acting on our behalf you see that he acts on our behalf so as to provide the timely help that we so desperately need and that was the entirety of Jesus' life on earth, even to the point of suffering temptations. In every respect, it says, in every respect, he was tempted just as we are, just as we are, yet was without sin. Verse 15, he was tempted. Circle that phrase, he was tempted. That's in the perfect tense it's a strong tense it means it means this it means that jesus still even now in the heavenly realm can recall at a heart level the experiences he had with resisting sin he's not forgotten what it was like to feel the struggle with greed dishonesty murder lust lying hatred he still remembers Right now, he remembers, and particularly, particularly, Jesus remembers the temptations unique to him as the Messiah. So throughout Jesus' life on earth, he was often tempted not to abandon his calling to rescue us from sin. No, 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 he wasn't tempted to abandon his calling. He was tempted to take shortcuts. And for Jesus, the ultimate temptation he faced was the temptation to evade suffering. Isn't that why the devil tempted him? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. You want to end world hunger? Prove it. If you are the Son of God, take a flying leap off that temple. Let's see the angels come down and scoop you up. Then we'll believe. All these kingdoms I will give you if you would just bow down and worship me. <laughs> Think about how ridiculous that sounds. For the created one to say to the creator, I'll give all this to you if you would. Man, that's Satan. That's Satan. Brothers and sisters, Satan doesn't want you to abandon God's goal. He just wants to give you a shortcut. 
Chapter 5, verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What does that mean, to learn obedience? Does that mean there was a time when he wasn't obedient? It, no, to learn obedience means to practice obedience. Jesus enrolled in the apprenticeship of obedience to the very end. He endured. He persevered. He did not quit. Jesus practiced obedience even when he suffered. And when he suffered, the people heard about it. What? Right? He did, look at verse 7 of chapter 5. That in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. C.S. Lewis said that the people who understand temptation the most are those who resist it. He wrote, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is not true. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an invading army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. Someone who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And then he says this, Lewis says, that's why bad people know very little about badness. They've lived such a sheltered life by always giving in. We, we, we never find out the strength of the evil inside us until we try to fight it. And Jesus Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only one who knows to the full extent what temptation means. He knew the depths and pains that we could never know because he did not sin. And because he suffered when tempted, he can help those who are tempted. Whatever you may be going through, there's not a note that you can play. There's not a melody or a dirge. There's no minor key that does does not evoke sympathy from Christ. And that's why when we are weak, only Jesus, the Son of God, can help. You know, in the Old Testament, only one person was appointed to enter the most holy place. And that's one day a year, just one day a year. And so there's no pinch hitter. There's no calling in sick. Jesus and Jesus alone qualified to pass through the heavens where he remains in the most holy place, in the presence of God, praying for us, pleading on our behalf, giving us strength. In the Old Testament, the, 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 the high priest entered a facsimile of the heavenly realm one day a year. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, remains there. He's still advocating for me. He's still saying, oh, Father, Randall Boldinghouse is mine. I died for him. He trusts me. He believes in me. He's received me. I will vouch for him. And he does that for all of us who call upon him. And that's why the Hebrew preacher exhorts us, hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession. The confession, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You may be tired, but you're not too tired to hold on to that confession. Let us draw near 
Let us draw near. So whenever, here, here's the big idea. You didn't think I was going to let you go without a big idea. Whenever we feel weak, we must hold fast and draw near to God's throne of grace through our great high priest, Jesus. You say, that's a lot of words to remember, Pastor. Okay, let me put it this way. Jesus gets me to God. Jesus keeps meeting God. There it is. And if you will put your life and your soul and your destiny in Jesus' hands, if you will follow him with the same reverent devotion with which he followed his heavenly Father, then you will experience the same outcome. It's a promise. That's why verse 9 says, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So then let us hold fast to the confession. I know you're tired, but you hang on to that. And let us draw near with confidence. I got to tell you that word before I sit down. Confidence is more than self-assurance. Confidence is more than emotional certainty. In Jesus' world, the word has to do with free speech. Free speech. That is the privilege of free and frank and unguarded language before a powerful and royal sovereign. It means that because of Christ, we can come freely into the most holy place, the heavenly realm by faith, the, the place where Jesus offered loud prayers and supplications, and we can unburden ourselves to the one who sympathizes with us and helps us. This, this, these verses are to help your prayer life. You're not, you're not praying before a bureaucrat. You're a child pleading before our Heavenly Father. And our Father has a throne of grace. And we have weaknesses. And Jesus is the great high priest. And he is our source. And he wants us to come to him because he is crazy in love about us. You say, what do I bring to the table? How could I be of any value to him? How could I possibly contribute to the team? You think any of those parents were asking that about their children yesterday morning? No, no, no. No, Jesus doesn't look at us the way general managers of professional sports teams approach the draft. We're children of God, and he's the source. And he's all, Jesus has already earned the victory. And our weakness is not an end, it's a means to an end. Our weakness proves to ourselves and others that, that anything God does through us is the result of his strength and his mercy and his grace and not our own. Our weakness is a pathway to the adorning power of Almighty God because of our great high priest, Jesus. Jesus, he gets us to God. Jesus, he keeps us in God. I'm done. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Amen. All right. Hmm. Oh, God. Hmm.